COVID-19 originated in animals sold in a so-called wet market in China. All Oh, man. Oh, man. It's going down. Episode number two of Conspiracy Conversations, where it actually is a conversation. We're going to sit. I'm going to going to ask questions, take in information. And the goal is for you as a listener to come in here and you might have spent your whole life. I say this every episode, but thinking, man, Rubik's Cubes are yellow and I would take it outside and fight with somebody over it. And it's not that you're wrong thinking that Rubik's Cubes are, are, are yellow. It's just that sometimes when you, when you when you talk to somebody that's spent a lot of time enough to even write a book on topics that you know about, but don't know, they come along and they just rotate that Rubik's cube a little bit and show you like, wow, they're also green. And you didn't even know you had no idea. Now you can walk around being like, all right, forget all Rubik's cubes are yellow and green, you know? And, and even that would be a little short-sighted because they're also red and kind of a little bit confusing. And some of you, your Rubik's cube is just kind of a little jumbled up in your head and, and you're not even sure what you're looking at. Um, I go into this conversation with a very open mind. I got more places to answer, get questions answered than I do uh, an agenda to push. My goal is to walk out of here and have a bigger mental and emotional vocabulary to be able to interpret the events that are happening in front of me each and every day. We use the word conspiracy. That might trigger you. But heck, what are some conspiracies that even six months ago you thought were a conspiracy and now they're not? Or, you know, it might be something as simple as, you know, uh, ivermectin is, you know, horse medicine. And and uh, what's Joe Rogan doing taking that? And, you know, there's a lot of things that uh, you might have thought were conspiracy not very long ago. And we're going to dive into some of them today and see where this goes. Uh, my goal is to have people that have spent, again, a ton of time in private working out some big issues so they could come into a public setting and be able to uh, enlighten both of us. Today's guests, guest is a doctor. He's a father of four. He's an author of two books, Leviathan and Fallen. And uh, while fictional books, they're grounded in the reality of what I would consider uh, Genesis chapter six. And so we're going to kind of dive into that. Don't need to believe Genesis chapter six, but I guarantee it's a great document. You merge it with some fiction writing. You got something pretty cool. Uh, he has a blog space called thehuffmanletters.com. Dr. Mark Huffman. Hey, Thanks for having me. Well, it's like when you walk into the hospital, you get you get the nurses and everybody line up, and you get an ovation no, every day. No, just you're, doctors. You're you're past that now. Yeah, they don't care. <laughs> Old it's news. Old yeah, news. a little bit. Before we dive into the books, tell us a little bit about about your 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 life and background. I see a piano. You kind of start gathering from people. Like what what's their what's their deal? What do they got going on? You got you got four kids. Oh, goodness. What, what's what's your what's your what's your deal? Oh, my deal. So I am an anesthesiologist uh, from Texas, kind of done the tour of Texas, born in Texas, raised in Texas, uh, gig of Maggie's, um, got married. It's a long story, but I end up winning. I think someone, <laughs> that's good. There's a little child at the door. Um, I end up winning and we have four kids. Uh, so we're in the, we're in the North Dallas burbs. I'm a practicing physician, but it turns out that I can't take naps. So uh, what I did when I was a surg surgical intern in the middle of the night, one night, knowing that it was two o'clock and there's no point in trying to sleep, is I thought, hey, maybe I should write a novel. Okay. So I did that. Now, I, I placed that in English because I didn't like English. Uh, <laughs> I, I did some concept art and stuff in medical school. So, you know, I always had that creative little bone, but uh, I started writing a novel and then I wrote it post call when I couldn't take naps and couldn't do anything else. And I turned out 
a novel and, and it won an award and I wrote the sequel and it's a trilogy. And my publisher says I have to finish the third one because like, like you alluded to, it's, it's about uh, the pre-flood Genesis world. Uh, and you know how it ends, but I know how it ends. Everybody dies except Noah and his family, but I just have to actually <laughs> write it and make it interesting. So that's why I'm right now, 50,000 words in, but two books down. It's like when we went to uh, you know, 1998 or something like that, and we we're going to Titanic, and there were people there that did not know the whole deal. I'm like, <laughs> you know, this ends poorly for most of them. <laughs> yeah. Right? Most, yeah. Any, any movie involving a boat, you know, is not going to go well. So Probably now, Le- Leviathan, is that the first one? That's the first one. In, in the series. I like the artwork. Mm-hmm. You know, it, you read some of these things. And again, I'm kind of the product of a grown up in a, in a Christian home, which a Christian school as, as a kid. Yep. And, but they sort of would skip over the good stuff. You know, you get mm-hmm. here and you, you read this thing about, man, the sons of God, the daughters of women, the giants Go around. And, and they're like, next, 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 let's get to the 10 commandments. Here's the stuff you can't do. And let's focus on that for a minute. No smoking or whatever like that. It's not even on the list. You know, it's like, well, it is, it should be, you know, kind of a thing. And it was this, there was a lot of just kind of sticking to those things. I'm like, there's a lot of interesting stuff in here. And uh, it's fascinating to me, even if you don't have a biblical background so, or a biblical agenda, you could have, you could, you could make movies forever just out of the old Testament. The stories that are there are so rich and so oh, full of, of drama and, and blood and guts and everything else. Oh yeah. If you just did the story of David, that would, oh. that would be game of Thrones. Um, I mean, with everything, with the sex and the violence, um, I, I think it's, it's a funny thing because I feel everything that you just said big time. It, maybe it's part of having these stories be taught as stories when you're six. I mean, the story of Noah, the story of David, these are not children's stories. The story of Noah is, is about 1600 years of earth history where people are multiplying and filling the earth and subduing it and then getting so bad that the only thing a just God could do is kill them all. Imagine the horror that was going, and then you add in half angel giants, and not just dinosaurs, but every you know every extinct megafauna species that ever lived there, which lots of things to talk about. But you you have all the elements of of kind of epic Tolkien esque fiction, yeah, but staying completely true to a a historical, grammatical, biblical hermeneutic, and that is to say, you just take the text. And like you said, I wanted to write these. So if you didn't believe that Genesis was truly the word of God, you could read them like we read Norse or Greek mythology, right? It's still extraordinarily entertaining. Um, But, you know, I I read Norse mythology and it's it's fascinating. But I'm not like, well, these gods are real. Um, That being said, you do come at these books with that understanding that, that Genesis is true history, you're going to get a lot more out of them. But they're also just entertaining to read. Absolutely. On reviewers say. <laughs> well, and it gets you an award too, if you put it together just right. So uh, Leviathan is your, is your first one. As you begin approaching this kind of text, what was the background that you had to pull from scripturally that served you well What's background that you might have had in your mind scripturally that you had to unlearn a little bit? You know, because some of these pictures, it's funny, you know, I have grandkids now and I'll see some of the stuff in the Sunday schools and it's like, there's Noah's Ark and there's some drafts of Noah and they're kind of like this and they're all looking at you. I'm like, who are they looking at? Oh, yeah. Who's he waving to? Everybody's screaming or dying. You know, it's like, it doesn't even make sense. Why are they smiling? Yeah. 
Noah, he's like, Noah hey, we're on the ark. And like, since he's been centuries, centuries before text, everything that he knew for six centuries was gone. And before it was gone, it turned so bad that the only thing God could do was was kill it. He would have been, it would have been awful. I mean, it would have, it, it was, it's a true apocalypse. And then he would have, he would have gotten off the ark. I mean, he's not going to be smiling and waving with, with no giraffes is all I'm saying. It would have right. been really depressing, horrific. Uh, I mean, imagine getting off the ark and the whole world that you knew and he knew it. You know what I mean? Even, even his kids and their wives and his wife, it's all just a barren, muddy wasteland. Um, yeah. And it would have been hard for anybody. I, I'd assume like if you come across a town that got hit by a tornado and being like, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, I used to play high school against these guys when I was in high school sure. and they were a bunch of jerks. So, you know, yeah. it, nobody's going to feel that way looking at that kind of damage, let alone mm-hmm. every, everything that, you know, imagine, yeah. imagine if you just lived in a, a, a town, you know, that got destroyed and, you know, and you, you you'd left to went back and visit. Imagine, you know, a, a state, or, or and it, I mean, it's hard to even imagine a, like any anything, you know, like mm-hmm. that. Most of us have never had the opportunity to experience something like that. You know, uh, every every person, not gradually over time, every person in a moment that he knew was gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Other than the, other than the eight of them. Yep. It's hard to get mad at him for getting a little drunk after, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> People have gotten drunk for a lot less. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm like, all right, I, I guess I get it a little bit. Um, but it, it, it was an interesting process. I don't know that there's anything that I had to unlearn necessarily, um, because I'd been thinking about this sort of thing for a long time. But it was an interesting process reading through, you asked what, what I needed to pick up the from the framework, which really was Genesis probably 3, all the way through Genesis 6, which is where the flood narrative starts. There's not a ton. There's some place names there's four rivers and then there's two genealogies which again most people just skip on over but there's some interesting things you can get out of there um i'll give an example and really who when's the last time you read genesis 5 reading through the genealogy of adam to noah was it a yeah, long time ago yeah it's, it's been a, a bit it's been ever. a bit and you yeah. kind of got beat you know this guy and then at this age he had he so and then they go on yeah so when you're when you're constructing a narrative it gets a little interesting because you you realize that Methuselah, who was Noah's grandfather, uh, died the year of the flood. And then you look into Methuselah, and his name means death sent. Uh, and a lot of scholars, very little of this is my original idea as far as the actual text or the meaning of the text. The narrative stuff, I, I think I had some clever stuff. But uh, Methuselah, Methuselah, Methuselah's name, to a lot of people, it's translated, when he dies, it will be sent. Well, he he died the year of the flood. Hmm. That's interesting. But Lamech, uh, Methuselah's son, Noah's dad, he is the only one of those patriarchs from Adam all the way down to Noah, besides Enoch, who was translated um, at around age 300-something, who dies not in his 900s. And if you do the math, he dies at 700-something. Um Looks like you got up there. Let's see. Lambic 182. So he lived 100, uh, 700. We, we do we do real-time fact-checking here. So Amazing. as you're quoting the Bible, we have it there. It's just, you know. Mm-hmm. That's good. Should... I like it. <laughs> it works for this. Um, so 770 years 
Lamech died five years before the flood. So one thing that you may have heard when you're defending things like Genesis as, as history, and I've definitely heard it is, well, or even if you're just listening to criticisms of, well, I don't believe in God because God was mean. I, I went to Christian school too. And there was a girl that I went to Christian school with um, who ended up kind of apostatizing. And one of the things that I heard that she, she cited as one of the reasons is, well, God was really mean and cruel for killing all of these people, mm-hmm. especially the babies. So I think about that. How do I put my understanding of God as loving and just and, and make sure there's no conflict with him flooding the entire earth? Well, one of the things I do is if you have a population of God-honoring, God-fearing good guys, you say, in the context of a world that is becoming quickly so bad and irredeemably corrupt and evil and wicked on a scale that we can't understand, right? Yeah. Um, how long would those good guys last? How long would – but we, we see that all the time. We see pogroms in Russia. We see genocide. We see mm-hmm. religious genocide all the time. Yeah. Why, why wouldn't we think that that happened extensively? A lot. And, and so God didn't kill any righteous people besides Noah because Noah was the only one who wasn't already slaughtered. And the same thing with babies. I mean, we have two famous historical biblical accounts, um, Moses and then Herod when Jesus mm-hmm. was a baby, um, where they did kill all the, all the kids. They did kill all the babies. And, you know, as I'm writing this third one and trying to figure out how exactly it's going to go down, um, I think, well, is this a world where a child could survive? Is this a world? Look at our society. Look at abortion. Do you know what I mean? We go about our daily lives knowing that every single day, maybe fewer now, um, you know, thanks. (laughs) Thanks, Trump Supreme Court. But millions of babies are slaughtered in. America. And we think of ourselves as, you know, kind of the good guys of the world. That's horrific. Um, all that to say, I don't think that there were probably any kids there. Obviously, I can't prove it. But when, you, when you're doing, when you're turning the text into a narrative, it has to make sense. So these are the things that yeah. you kind of have to think about. Because it's interesting, you're not, you didn't invent some, uh, this isn't Aragon or something where you invented some whole make-believe world. Right. You know, right. you, you did sort of handcuff your, yourself to famous text and narrative situation in order, but you had to bring it to life in a way that mm-hmm. nobody had ever seen. So that's one fascinating thing I've had, you know, mentally preparing, you know, for this conversation, because one thing, uh, if, if you watch a lot of Bible movies, so to speak, probably because of budget mm-hmm. and cast and things like that, it's like, you know, David and his merry men, there's like five guys walking around in a sandbox or something like that. And it's like, yeah. Right. I th- I th- these were thriving civilizations, even in David's time, you know, or, or, you know, by the time he was going into the land of Canaan, it's like stuff that they're dealing with their giants and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, you, right. go, you go back to Noah, this isn't like, you know, a couple of homesteaders out on the prairie deciding to, to, to build a boat for no reason. Some, some of these cities were, were monstrous. The populations were huge. And when you look at the, long, so. if you to take it at literal face, if you live 700, 800, I mean, how many kids are you having? 
You know, I mean, if I don't right. know what your I don't know what your childbearing productive years would be, but it wouldn't be like say age twenty to forty or something like that. Yeah, and then you're done, yeah. and here's here's your next nine hundred years of just. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, no, some of these, is. some of these, and what kind of knowledge base would you have? You know, I'm That's a grandparent right. now, and it's like, you know, I think like, okay, here's here's the things I've accumulated. I'm making better decisions now than I ever mm-hmm. have in my entire life. I'm like, man, if you tack on extra seven hundred years of me figuring things out, it's gonna be hard to pull sure. a fast one on me. I've, I've tapped my sure. shoulder here. I'm not going to look over, you know, it's like, you know, I'm mm-hmm. not going to fall for any of these tricks anymore. Yeah. It, you'll see different authors and there are several other authors who kind of tackle this time period in different ways. And you, you see them do different things. I wanted, I say this and I realize it's a little, it's a little hard to, to define this, but make it believable. Um, meaning you, I've seen some authors do things like, well, they had they had flight, they had space travel, they had nuclear technology. Uh, some of it gets real into fantasy. I mean, really, really into fantasy. I wanted to find a, a kind of a space where it's technology that would have been believable for men who lived 900 years. Um, it wasn't banging on stones. That's what I'm saying. I also right. don't think they were flying Concorde jets. Um, maybe they were, I don't know. Um, but that would be so require a it, big, big jump from yeah. what we know. Exactly. You know, and, and then again, there's, there's a big difference between something, you know, and something you've been told, you mm-hmm. know, and it's like, uh, it'd be hard to add that to the, I know category, you know, to work it into your novel. Yeah. So I, I think I, I like the track I picked, but if in, in figuring all that stuff out, there's some fascinating technology that we just don't know about. And there's some, you want to get into some conspiracies. This is where the conspiracy stuff comes in. Um, I don't use magic, although magic in scripture is a whole nother conversation. I, I say, I don't use magic. There is magic in there. There's magic in scripture. Um, it's it, not it defined magic Potter kind of stuff. Well, that <laughs> David, um, Moses, the story of Moses, I, I don't mean Harry Potter stuff. I don't mean telekinesis. Any there's there's magic, and then there's I, I guess I my answer would be I stay in the confines of magic as defined in scripture. And maybe some people are thinking magic and scripture. I don't know about that. Um, you you probably do sure. actually. If you think about it. Uh, I'll give you an example. If you read the text of uh, Moses and Pharaoh at the very beginning, so it's Moses and Aaron and Aaron's staff. And they go, and the first time they confront Pharaoh and his court magicians, if you recall, uh, Aaron tosses down his staff, Mm -hmm. becomes a snake, and the court magicians can do it. Um, I love The Prince of Egypt. It is a fantastic movie. It is a fantastic cast. Great music. It's it's fantastic music. Um, It's just a great movie. My one beef with it is that Martin Short and Steve Martin's magician characters are shown to be charlatans, stayed magicians. They, they're illusionists. And that's right. not what the text said. The text said they, they were able to recreate it, and Pharaoh said, no big deal. I can do this yeah. too. Scram. So then Moses and Aaron turn water to blood. The court magicians can do it. The text does not say, and they tricked Pharaoh into saying, they tricked Pharaoh right. with they could also bring frogs up, but when Moses and Aaron brought gnats out of the ground, that's when they they tapped out. 
And they said, this is God. We can't do this anymore. Fast forward to Canaan uh, and Moses is leading the Israelites and then he dies and Joshua takes control. And um, when God gives them, again, this is a part of scripture that, that everyone kind of skips over, the Levitical law. If you look throughout that, God commands the Israelites not to practice sorcery, not to practice necromancy, not to practice divination. It doesn't make sense for God to command somebody not to do something that is impossible to do. Right. And look, I'm a physician. Like I'm terminally trained in empirical science. So I totally understand how that tends to sound in our very materialistic world. But the fact is, if you're a Christian, especially if you're a Christian who believes that Jesus Christ was actually God, born of a virgin, who did miracles that defied the laws of physics and then died on the cross in a way that relates to you personally and physically rose from the dead so that if you confess with your mouth that he's Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will spend eternity in a giant gold and gemstone city cube. That's what you believe as a Christian. Yeah. Right? That's the core the core doctrine of Christianity. So, I mean, you got a problem with like actually magically turning water into blood, really? Do you really? Um, yeah. It, it, so it definitely, it salvation is a further fetched concept than the things recorded in most of the Old Testament. Sure. Including, and that's a perfect segue into half angel giants, David, the Nephilim. Mate. So, so, so get our listeners imagination going, you know, and, and, and I got to ask you this also, did you base this primarily on just Genesis one through six, one through 11, kind of through tower of Babel, that kind of like world, or did you, did you pull in like book of Enoch and, and some of these other things for like reference of what this could look like? Great and then, question. And then if you could kind of start, start creating a picture of what this world looked like to people that are, you know, sure. walking around in Chicago or, you know rural Indiana and, you know, just doing their thing. They're walking their dog right now, listening to this on Apple podcast. Yeah. But it looks, it's a different world than what they're walking around in. It's a much different world. Um, so I pulled in a couple of things, the book of, you know, in, in, in order of importance, obviously the biblical text was foundational. Uh, nothing could conflict it. I had to use every part of it. Right. There's not a lot there, though. It's really just a skeleton. It's two family trees, some place names, and some rivers. So now I had to pull in some other stuff. Um, one of the keystone passages is Genesis 6, 1 through 4, where yeah. it talks about the Nephilim. Uh, there are a couple of views as to what they are. Uh, one of them I did not use. I don't think it's scripturally supported as strongly as the other, but it's, it's where the sons of God... But the, the text itself says the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they went into them and they bore children to them. And these were the Nephilim heroes of old men of renown. Uh, one view says that the sons of God were just the sons from Seth, Seth's line, the line that ended up in Noah. And they they're the righteous people on earth and that the daughters of men were Cain's line. And they were just they were just bad humans. So it's just it's just humans. First, I'm trying to write like a Tolkien-esque epic fantasy. That's boring. That's not nearly <laughs> yeah. as exciting as Half Angel Giants. Uh, but that phrase "sons of God" is Bene Elohim, and it's used one other time. 
in the Old Testament in Job, where God himself is talking to Job and he gets real sarcastic with Job, which is kind of hilarious to see. Um, and he says, where were you when basically when I created the world, yeah. when all the sons of God, the Bene Elohim shouted for joy, that is unequivocally describing angels. It's the same phrase. So textually that phrase should be translated as, as angels. If you're going to translate it the same way as Job, the big uh, contention and argument against that is later on when Jesus is talking about marriage and, and he says, in, he says that basically in heaven, there won't be any marriage just like there's no marriage in heaven with angels. Oh, I don't know if you can find that one real quick, but I bet you can. We'll see. Producer um, Colton's pretty amazing on it. And yeah, so, so we'll get it. But I, I guess what, what, and my counter argument to that is that's talking about in heaven. That's not talking about on earth or then, or, or, or then. But the fact is God's Jesus is talking about in heaven. There's no marriage. If, if you're really using a logical corollary, then, then actually you would conclude that on earth, angels might be mar- able to be married. And in fact, from scripture, it's very obvious that angels can take human form and that they can perform human functions. They can come down and they can eat. They can eat mm-hmm. with Abraham. You know what I mean? They can come down and they can, you know, sing, walk, yeah. talk. They, they perform human functions. So... That's that is a view that I think is most scripturally supported. Uh, it's it's also the view that I take in the book, and there are other there again very little of this is, is unique to me. Um, and you got some grace here because uh, two things here. Now maybe Colton, have you read that verse there? Um, you, you got a little bit of grace because hey, you're you're not a pastor trying to you know d- deliver some theological yeah. sermon, so you're you're like hey. Back off, dude. I'm a doctor here studying the scriptures, doing the best I can (laughs) as an author. So you've got a little bit of grace, you know, on that. But I think some of this, it's just healthy for us as, 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 as a people group to study ancient texts Mm -hmm. and, and, and use them if nothing else for a, Hey, history repeats itself. Hey, we've been here before, Mm -hmm. you know, on something. It's how, now, how do I interpret that? You know, in, in my life, Colton, what'd you find from Jesus and Matthew? Uh, Matthew 22, mm-hmm. uh, this is section 23 where the Sadducees were coming to him and they were like, like given this really complicated, if a man dies, mm-hmm. he has children, but the widow is forced based on the law of Moses. And they're, they're trying to get him into this thing of like, they got John Madden going here. They're yeah. To- yeah. And, and boom, uh, you know, you're married to this person. So they're trying to pull this full, this full triple Indy on him and try to confuse him. And he says, you're in complete error. Uh, you do not know the scriptures or the power. This is verse 29 or the power of God. Jesus says this at the resurrection. People will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven, but about the resurrection of the dead. Have you not read what God has said to you? And then he continues on uh, to answer the question, but that's the, the, the piece there. Be like angels yep. in heaven. So there's an implied fool, fool at the end. Yes. It, it's, it's like not said, but implied fool. Uh, you, you silly monkeys. You silly monkeys. So let's, let's back up even before that, because I, I got a question for you. And again, you know, you're a, you're a doctor, so you're not, you know, on the hook here for your answer. So it's kind of gives you a little bit of freedom, you know? Yes. So, so I, you know, Cain kills Abel, right? Um, God marks Cain and sends him away, but Cain's scared. He's like, Hey, I'm afraid where I'm going to go. People are going to kill me and know what I've done. Like who was Cain scared of? 
Because mm. the sort of the Much. narrative you read this, like you have the Garden sure. of Eden, Eve made a bad choice, Adam should have stepped in, bad husband, you know, whatever. So they're kicked out the garden. And then it's like, you know, kind of feels in the flow like a week or two later. Now they're all kind of out walking around. They're trying to put up a tent and find out how to forage. And, 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 and then, you know, maybe they had the kids with them. Maybe they have the two kids now, but it's all fairly quick. But I'm yeah, like, in the narrative, it's fairly quick. There's so, a lot going on here. If he's scared a of a people on. group for his life. Yep. So the book of Jubilees and the book of Enoch, I don't, I did not treat as canon. There's some of it that, that I kind of, well, obviously don't treat it as canon. I don't treat it as canon. Although the, there's a, the Ethiopian Christian church does treat the book of Enoch as canon, which I found was interesting. Um, the book of Jubilees and the book of Enoch are extra biblical books that talk a lot about that, including the names of Adam and Eve's full progeny. So was there incest in that first generation? Yes, there was. The brothers married the sisters. They did. Does that matter? No. No, we're, we, we're, we're, we're the second generation of earth. You don't, they're not beholden to Levitical law or Judaic law or modern sensibilities. They didn't really have a lot of other options. They also wouldn't have had any of sort of the genetic flaws that that yeah. make it make a lot of sense to not to not procreate within your consanguinity. Um, so where did those people come from? Would have been his kinfolk. So it would so have this... been real bad that Uncle Cain just killed Uncle Abel. What the heck, man? Um, so this has been going on quite a while. Then it, it, it doesn't feel that long. Exactly. And I think we lose track a little bit. I forget who it was. I read this one time, but it went through this idea of, um, I forget the, with the birth rate of like three or three and a half or something like that per generation, starting with eight people within a thousand years, you could be up to a billion in population. You know, it's like sure. they had that had all graphed out, you know, and I'm like, sure. that's pretty fascinating because again, when mm-hmm. you look at most Bible stories, you know, there's like towns with like 18 people in it, mm-hmm. you know, and they're, they're not large cities are not large numbers of people. And they naturally wanted to gather to large cities. God confused languages and spread them out. Like he wanted them going out and, and doing more, but we can create yeah. pretty large numbers of population pretty quickly. There's, there's a real range and people have, people have really tried to, take a look and say, here's the genealogies, here are the assumptions. And a lot of it's based on assumptions. Your conclusions, yeah. as far as that goes, are, are based on you know a range of assumptions. But it could have been a whole lot of people. And you know, my contention would be that there towards the end, a lot of those people were dead for whatever reason, for warfare or famine or the same, the same pressures that an evil world today uh, results in, in genocide and widespread death. Mm-hmm. But I think you could have gotten a population that's way, way up there, especially if they're fulfilling the command to be fruitful and multiply, and they're able to do it for literal centuries. Are you having a hard time sleeping at night thinking, what am I going to do about my finances? You know, times are really changing. They're changing fast. Let me give you a quick example of how in 1920, if you had a $20 bill and one ounce of gold, you could go into any men's clothing store and buy an entire suit. Wow. You could buy the, the jacket, the shirt, the belt, shoes, the whole bit. Today, 
That's what our bill. What's it going to get you? Not much. Maybe the socks, maybe a <laughs> handkerchief, but the one ounce of gold could still buy you the entire suit at any men's store in America. That's the difference. That's what inflation does to your dollar. It's a deflating dollar caused by inflation. Now today, that's happening faster than ever. You need somebody that you trust that can help get you out of a fake currency and into something that's going to keep you safe. And we know a guy that has two PhDs by the name of Dr. Dr. Kirk Elliott. We have known him for over 25 years, and he's someone we completely trust. You need somebody that you can get a hold of, somebody that's going to be there for you to get back out of it, and then maybe back into the stock market, maybe back into something else when things settle down. But right now is not that time. You need somebody that you trust and somebody you can call and make those worries go away. That's exactly right. So you can go to flyovergold.com. Dot com, fill out your information for a free consultation, or you can call 720-605-3900. Do it today. You'll be glad you did. Let's dig in another question in that same timeline. These are just things that always fascinated me when I'm, when I'm reading this. When you look at those overlaps... And we've, mm-hmm. we've done this as a family. I think our kids were in, in middle school, but we've got these charts and we kind of draw it out like, okay, like the lifespan of somebody. And then, you know, then the next person we did, yeah. like, okay, then this person was born. There's a lot of overlap in these, in these timelines. So, um, Methuselah clearly could have had coffee with Adam and they would have been yeah, around. That's how, how Leviathan starts. Leviathan th- th- these starts guys all would have known each other. Sure. Methi- Leviathan starts with Methuselah grabbing young Lamech because Adam is dying. Um, so it's Adam's deathbed. But yeah, that that's overlap. Noah wouldn't have overlapped with Adam, but Methuselah and Lamech both would have. Yeah, they uh, could have conversations. Really, sure, sure they could have. It, oh, there you go. So I'll tell you what, what gets interesting. And it, I don't get into this in the books, but they're, they're towards the end. So you see Noah lives almost to uh and does he overlap with abraham yeah. i think noah does uh, shim for sure overlaps with abraham which is yeah. wild abraham um, abraham and and uh noah could have known each other pretty significantly actually yeah yeah and for sure it, I, isaac gets a little sketchy but imagine being noah and I, I don't write about this i just think this is a fascinating part like don't skip the genealogies think about the genealogies yeah. Um, and you can see here clearly that Lamech dies right before, just five years before the flood. And, and again, I'm I'm going to do a whole lot of widespread slaughtering at that point in my narrative. But you're Noah. And some of this goes back to Genesis 1 through 4, where God says, nevertheless, I shall make man's days 120 years. And there are various, just kind of jumping around here, but 120 years uh, there are various views on what that means. Some people think that, well, that's how long it would have taken him to build the ark. And my counter to that is, seriously? A guy, a guy over there in, in Denmark or, or Holland or somewhere built a quarter-scale ark by himself in a matter of years. And you're telling me a very, very highly motivated Noah and seven other people, because it's not like those women folk are, would just be hanging around. Right doing their nails like everyone's very motivated to fulfill this command to build the ark so they don't die in a flood that is coming down the pipe i don't think it's realistic to say that's 120 years what i think is more realistic to say is that that's where whatever switch gets flipped 
to make the lifespan go from 900 something to Colton, will you put that up there again? I like that. I like that chart. So 900, 900, 900, 900. And then Shem, it doesn't live anywhere close to 900. But the next four after Noah are still living a, a long, long lifespan. And then you see a huge drop off. So it's not just that Noah could have known Abraham. It's that he would have watched some of Abraham's like great, great grandparents die. Shem sure would have. Look, look how many people uh, Shem would have seen. Um, he outlived his son. He outlived his grandson. He didn't outlive Eber, but then he outlived everybody else. Uh, I mean, it, what, what, we got like Jacob and, and Joseph in them. I mean, that's not like far off. I can't no. follow exactly that chart there, but um, no, it's not it, far off at all. You know, and, and there's uh, a difference between uh, you know we talk about learning from our histories and different things like that. Well. You know, I think there's one reason why they want to tear down statues and rewrite history books. And if they can do something in our era, like, you know, that we saw, you can see on the news one night and a couple of years later, it's like Trump's putting babies in cages at the border, you know, because he hates people from that part of the world. It's like, you know, yeah. like they can rewrite these things and say it with such conviction, or, you know, regardless. Trump is, Trump is racist. Yeah. What? And you're and Are it's you like. Based on on what? Well, because we said it. When we live in a world of video, um, my wife's grandmother turned a hundred last summer, and still just feisty and full of, of of fight and has a garden and you know all this kind of stuff. Um, there's a difference between me knowing that there was a Great Depression and mm -hmm. what it was like then in the Dust Bowl, you know, here in the Midwest, and talking to her, and it's, you know, it kind of makes sense why she reuses her aluminum foil and washes out a Ziploc. And it's like somebody who's been through that, they just live differently. You know what it's like being on tough times. And it's like, so yeah. to hear a story from her, then I compare my tough time to what would it be like if I was, you know, alive then and everything's rationed. And so, but that right. firsthand experience of hearing her say what it's like to live through the Great Depression is a totally different thing than seeing a picture or hearing about it. Think of the things that were shared around the fire or at the dinner table or whatever by this cast of characters that all clearly would have overlapped in their lifespan, mm -hmm. the kind of warnings and messages that they either would heed or not. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, just from one little genealogy, imagine Noah's a, uh, you know, the cliched, well, in my day I walked uphill both yeah. ways in the snow. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, the kind Noah, of conversation they'd have, shut up. You're only 300. Wait till you get to 400. Yeah. You know, I was the same way when I was a kid. Yeah. I saw everything I knew get flooded and it's gone now. Stop whining. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you know, clearly. So let's 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 dive in then and that. I wanted to ask the Kane question because I figured you've given that some some serious thought and that's not mm -hmm. again that kind of gets lost in the flannel graph world, you know, that that I sort of sprouted up in. Um try the best we can again, listeners sitting there walking around to downtown Chicago or in rural Indiana or or here in in Missouri. Bring to life the best you can what life looked like during that conversation on Adam's deathbed, what's going on in the world? And what would be this, if we had a time machine and went back now to at least the world you've imagined based on the text, what would be the biggest things that would jump out to us? Well, I if think we, when you, we get out of the DeLorean with you, there are a couple of main civilizations. Uh, one is Eden. And that is where the Garden of Eden was not Eden. That was, that was a particular place in the land of Eden. 
And so that's why I kind of said Noah's family for the whole time. Uh, and I, I think that probably would have been very pastoral. He would have known how to do viticulture. He would have known how to, I mean, he planted a vineyard after the flood. It's like the first thing he did and he made a bunch of wine. So I picture that as kind of a, a, a you know, a, a rural winemaking region of Italy or France. But meanwhile, you had Cain. Cain got booted. He went and established the city of Enoch, which a little bit confusingly is, is the name of his son too. There's also an Enoch who gets famously translated in Shim's line. But the thing about that is nothing. If you read what God says to Cain, nothing grows. I mean, he says, you're not going to, nothing's going to grow for you. So I see that as being more of an urban trade center where you have to trade, you're forced to trade. So that becomes a center of technology of things like forging and, and uh, building. And then when I bring down the Bene Elohim, which is a conversation I hope we get into, but angels, not demons, not angels that were obedient to God, but just basically angels who were like, chicks are hot. Let's go have babies with them. And then they did, uh, who ended up becoming the Nephilim. So this is, I picture it more of kind of the, imagine a megalithic Greek Acropolis. Okay. Uh, those are the two settings. But as far as other civilizations, um, again, I don't think it was high tech. I don't think it was steampunk. I don't think it was sci-fi. I don't think there would have been any need to do any of that stuff. I, I Obviously, I can't say for sure. Uh, that's not the track I took, but uh, this would have been, these weren't dumb people. These yeah. were very likely people with an intellect exponentially more malleable and capable than ours. And they would just keep learning and they'd learn from each other and they'd, they'd pass stuff on to their great, 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 great grandkids. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I think you could have some really, really, really interesting, not technology necessarily, but civilization. So um, just kind of the, the coolest, most compelling Tolkien-esque fantasy world you can think of. I think maybe that w- wouldn't be quite quite far off. Um, okay. Then add to, add to that, this is where we get a little interesting, add to that animals every single kind that would have ever existed, including dinosaurs. And they also have no fear of man. That is something very specific that God tells uh, around the time of the flood is that now animals are going to have the fear of man, which obviously necessitates it before they didn't have the fear of man. So what would that have been? Hmm. Maybe you could tame them. Maybe you could tame dinosaurs and ride them. So interesting. If you've ever, if well, it's interesting, and obviously, I write a lot about that in my book because, my gosh, all I wanted to do with this book is have a scene where a half angel giant rides an elasmotherium, which is a giant hairy unicorn, against a demon possessed dinosaur, and I do it. It's super dope. You got it in there because you because well because it got your name on the front of the book. It's kind of like that poster yeah. I saw all the time of uh, Ronald Reagan riding a. Uh, uh, triceratops or something holding yeah. machine guns or something. It's kind of one maybe of those not, type of maybe deals. not machine guns, but you know, yeah, maybe. Uh, but somebody had to paint it just because it was in their head and they thought it was cool. 
Yeah, yeah. And, and the cool thing about this is, I mean, maybe, I don't know if that sounded, how outlandish that sounded, but if you take everything known from natural history and the scriptural text, that's actually a scenario that fits in with it. So I thought that was, yeah, there yeah. we go. There we go right there. You know, if, yeah. if I, if I was doing something uh, fictional, that would have to be a character in it. Uh, big Ronald Reagan fan. And if you can mix in a dinosaur with an American flag uh, and I think some kind of a rocket launcher, then uh, mm-hmm. you got, you got yep. yourself. That's what, that's what you call date night here in Missouri. That looks <laughs> awesome. So, oh yeah. so in that moment, let's kind of bring that up a little bit. So how, how far past in your estimation and, and you're kind of a weird cat to talk to because you got the, the 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 science doctor part over here, and then you know this this other component that they tend to try to to grind out of you throughout your education that you've kind of been able to hold on to both these ropes at once or something. I don't know how that happened, but uh, how old would you say the Earth was at this moment, and how far from God creating Adam? would you say that we're looking at here in, in this, this flood pre-flood world? So I'm, I am very much what is called a biblical creationist or a young earth creationist. Um, and that is not out of ignorance. That is very much out of the opposite. And I, if you, if you watched my, my little bit with Nino, you, we got into that a lot of rabbit holes and there are a lot of rabbit holes you can go down. Um, the, so that's the answer to your question. I, I would put the earth understanding the text of Genesis one unequivocally states seven normal work days for multiple reasons. Um, and then the genealogies of Noah, I would put the age of the earth around starting point around 4,000 BC. Kepler would also do that. He did that. Newton would also do that. He did that. They both calculated slightly differently. I think it was like 4,004 and 3,992. Okay. Uh, the greatest historian of the medieval period was a guy named Usher. He also put it around 4,000. If you look at all the historians before around 1800, it's all around that 4,000-year mark. So my, uh, my pedigree for that thought is very much a scientific one considering – Kepler was probably the greatest astrophysicist and astronomer of all time. And uh, Newton invented physics. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm very comfortable talking about that in any context, in biology, in Darwinian evolution, in uh, cosmology. We can talk about the Big Bang Theory, which is really a positive curvature, Robertson-Walker cosmological model. And you don't understand it correctly, even if you do think you do. I guarantee that because they don't they don't teach it as it really is. Because what, what, be what's like, interesting what? is you you've spent a great deal of time. Again, I usually use this term. I love to have guests on the show that have spent countless hours wrestling with some of these huge topics before they stumble yeah. into the the marketplace of ideas and, and start sharing them. And sometimes yeah. someone's quick to stumble on here. And, ah, I saw a podcast about one thing, and the guy said this, and so that's what I think. And, and I, I just want to encourage listeners to take in as much as you can put it into your head and wrestle with it yourself because yeah. there's no, you know, you got to uh, be able to own the things that you believe in, not repeat yeah. what you've been told. That's exactly right. And, and I've, I've very much tried to do that. You can go back to the source, especially today. You don't have to go to some dusty library in England or whatever. Um, 
you got a pocket computer. You really can look up every single point of view. And I mean, I have, I've, I've read Dawkins and, and Darwin and, you know, E.O. Wilson and, and Behe and a whole range of views on this. Um, Darwin would not have worked on a young earth model. Uh, Darwin, well, Darwin wouldn't have worked on a young earth model. He didn't work on a young earth model because he was working from a series of books by a guy named Charles Lyell, who wrote a popular work like a three volume work that Darwin took on the Beagle that itself was based on the ideas of an amateur Scottish geologist named James Hutton, who came up with this philosophical idea. It was philosophical. It was not scientific called uniformitarianism, where he said, just here are the rules. We can't understand geology by anything other than what we see in action today. So water erosion, wind erosion, um, he didn't know about tectonic plates, I don't think, but that sort of slow processes. And when was he to, when was he writing? Uh, around eighteen hundred. Okay, James Hutton. So that eventually supplanted the general term would have been catastrophism, which it's 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 most famously associated with a guy named Cuvier. Um, but catastrophism was the Earth's geology is explained by massive single event catastrophes. And obviously everyone who believed that the Bible was history, which at that point was, you know, more than today said, well, duh, it's in Genesis. It's the Noahic flood, right? It's the flood of Noah. That's the catastrophe mm-hmm. that defines geology. Well, Hudden supplanted that not because of evidence, just because of scientific philosophy. And I can tell you as someone who is very, very involved in medicine and science in general. Do you know what, what medical consensus is? You know what that means? Explain. If you hear that there is a physician consensus, that means that a bunch of doctors got together in a room, talked about something and just kind of, made their best guess and that's the consensus what it does not mean is we know this is true it's the opposite right if you hear this is the consensus position it means we don't know we just kind of think this is the best uh if you ever want to read fascinating fact y'all know who neil degrasse tyson is yeah yeah it's hard to miss him in today's world because they've done the best attorney he's like the elvis of science now Right, exactly. He, he There's a meme that's been going around from an interview he did recently with, with a guy who was very vaccine skeptic, very, very critical of the way that, that you know, international organizations went about the whole COVID thing. There, there he, is. he is. Hey, buddy. And he smirk. says something about, I don't care about the individual scientists. I only care about consensus. And it's hilarious to me because he should know better. Uh, if you look at the history of science, it is replete and littered with discarded consensus positions. If you can look at the Wikipedia, uh, there's, there's an entire Wikipedia section on superseded scientific theories. Uh, have you ever heard of a phlogiston? Nope. No, most people haven't heard of phlogiston. Uh, a phlogiston, there was something called the phlogiston theory of combustion. We're talking about okay. fire. We're not talking about something esoteric or hard to study or rare. It's 
fire, for heaven's sake. The, the guy, this is an important figure in anesthesia. Yeah, there you go. I bet that's Joseph Priestley. Is that Joseph Priestley? No, it's this is J.J. Becher. Okay. I bet it's Bechet. It looks French. Becher. No, whatever. Becher. Um, so the phlogiston theory of combustion is that material that can catch on fire do so when they get hot enough to emit phlogiston particles. Okay. And that's what makes fire. So fire is made out of phlogiston. Uh, the guy who discovered both oxygen and nitrous oxide is a guy named Joseph Priestley. And we used to, we still use nitrous oxide on anesthesia machines. So he's, he's an important character in anesthesiology. But uh, from my understanding, till the day he died, he was a diehard proponent of phlogiston combustion theory. Okay. Uh, this is a guy who discovered oxygen, like the necessary component okay. for So he's not an idiot. Combustion. He's not an idiot. He's right. a giant of chemistry, of, of the history of chemistry. Um, you've never heard of the phlogiston theory because it's nonsense. It's utter nonsense. I went to school in Galveston. And they, they have a little hall in a really, really cool old building called uh, Big Red, um, Old Red, one of them. One's the drink, one's the building. But uh, <laughs> one of the guys, one of the statues that they have is a guy named Galen. Okay. And I imagine no one's heard of Galen, but Galen was, uh, he was a famous, famous, famous anatomist and physician. Okay. And he produced uh, an anatomical understanding of the human body. And okay. it's Galen's anatomy for a thousand years. That's all that was taught. The for how long? Under, a thousand years. Okay. And you're, uh, if you became a physician, you learned the human anatomy again not rare not weird not hard to study but you you understood that galen's anatomy was textbook and then a guy named andreas vesalius came along and he realized that galen had used monkeys as the basis of a lot of his anatomical studies and he was he like was he like breaking down cadavers or in this kind of thing and that's what he made the yeah, models I, from i think that's a lot i think vesalius did because there have been rules about cadaver cadavers and all that stuff but whatever it was vesalius came and said wait 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 a lot of galen's anatomy is bonkers wrong because he used monkeys and what do you think the reaction was from the entire medical community of europe that had understood galen to be right for a thousand years it wasn't well gosh vesalius you make a great point. Let's take another look. <laughs> what they, they aim or this, something? There's a scram. You kidding me? Galen's anatomy's wrong. Well, guess guess what? Spoiler alert. Galen's anatomy was based on monkeys. Wah, wah, wah. So so when you tell me that scientific consensus is some sort of dispositive, this is right sort of thing, it tells me you don't understand the history of science. That's not to say that consensus is wrong. It's to say that true empirical science is ready to discard even big ideas, even foundational ideas, if they're proven to be illegitimate. Hey, Flyover family. We have a brand new sponsor for the Flyover Conservative Show, Heaven's Harvest. So exciting. We've been really excited about this partnership because for about two years now, our level of awareness has increased on things that can go wrong in the world. Not just the, the big major stuff, but ice storms in Texas and things that you know you don't plan on. And I guess a level of personal responsibility of like, hey, we have people that we care for that depend on us. And so 
we've been tiptoeing into it, but it's overwhelming. It's like, what do I do next? And so we've made little steps in that process, but we've been asking everyone we know, everyone we respect in this space, hey, who's a good supplier of things? Who has food Who has food that you would actually eat if you if you had to, that without eating styrofoam that you'd be gagging down if you lost a bet? You know, like, like real actual food that if you put it away for storage, that when it came time to do it, would be palatable, as well as, as heirloom seeds. You know, a lot of the seeds nowadays, you plant them, they're not, they're not, you can't reproduce with them. You know, they're, they've been uh, genetically modified and, and really messed up. So we've been asking people we, we, yep. we, we really respect. Somebody we get a lot of advice from personally, we've made a lot of small moves in our life from is Seth Holhouse with Man in America. And, and uh, we kind of went off of his lead as well as some others. And so we are super excited about this partnership because they're willing to give a massive discount to the Flyover family. That's exactly right. When you go to heavensharvest.com and you use promo code flyover, you get 10% off. What a great deal. We are so thankful and excited about this partnership. Consensus is not always right. So now it's it probably more complicated now though, where you have consensus created by scientists that are all maybe funded by the same pharmaceutical company. Sure. You know, that, that kind of, can, you know, clouds up the water even, even, even more. Cause, oh, sure. cause, cause you know, Probably nine out of 10 researchers come to the conclusion the funding probably wants. Uh, it's hard to speak. that You hate to say that that really is the driver, but it matters. It, when it turns – bench science, which I've done a little of, is, is very boring and it's very routine and it doesn't get headlines. It just doesn't. Empirical science has very little to do with the big – splashy uh, scientific American cover articles. It just doesn't. It's too boring. Mm -hmm. It's more fun to say big things, but a lot of times the big things are way overblown. Uh, And again, we won't talk about the CDC or the last three years or what I feel that that's done to the credibility of the medical and scientific community. It was terrible. We'll never recover within my lifetime. Um, but so I guess I did say that, uh, you just, you can't, you can't lose sight of the fact that these people are humans and that they have different desires and they have different pressures and levers that can be placed upon them. Um, and that a lot of times they can fall into a little bit of narcissism and, I think you've seen that big time with Tony Fauci, who really, really, really likes himself some Tony Fauci. Mm-hmm. I think that a little with Francis Collins, too. Mm-hmm. Um, there, There is a little bit of it. You for sure see that with, with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, there's a cult of personality that scientists really don't deserve. Because when it comes down to it, empirical science, which, by the way, was developed by a young Earth creationist named Francis Bacon, it... Is it observable? Is it repeatable? Is it measurable? That's empirical experimental science. Here's what's not empirical science. The age of the earth, no matter what position you have, you have to make axiomatic assumptions that that aren't based on evidence at all. Uh, Evolution or the origin of life. You can't do an experiment on it. It was a single time event. You can study it to an extent, 
And I, I, I can talk all, on and on and on and on. I, I would love it. And hopefully you'll tie in like carbon that. dating and stuff here because people are sitting there watching sure. it and it's like, well, hey, they, so, they, they've done dating on this stuff very scientific. Yeah. They can tell you exactly how old things are. They have a yeah, system sure. for this. Perfect example. Carbon dating is one kind of radio, radio isometric dating. That's what it's called. There are other ways to do it. There's like lead, lead, rubidium, strontium. They're, they're different daughter-parent isotopes that you can use to date things. Okay. If somebody ever tells you that carbon dating proves that the earth is billions of years old or proves that fossils are millions of years old, you automatically know that they don't actually know exactly what they're talking about. And the reason is carbon dating uses carbon 14 and carbon 12 as the parent daughter isotope. Uh, and carbon 14's half-life is a little under 6,000 years. Okay. So 6,000 years, it's like 5,700, but half of it will be carbon 12. And then another half of it, so a quarter of the total, after 12,000 years, you're going to have a quarter of that original amount, okay. uh, which means functionally, you got about 100,000 years before it, it's functionally undetectable. And I think 200,000 years or so, and then it's totally useless. It's all carbon 12. So it can't even theoretically date anything older than 200,000 years. So what they mean is radioisometric dating, but they don't actually know anything about the subject, so they say carbon dating. And this is what I mean when I say you have to have axiomatic assumptions. An axiom is a presupposition that you accept a priori. That's going to be the foundation for all of your conclusions. And I have one. I absolutely have one. It's that the Bible is true. That's my axiom. For some people, it's that there is no God. The material world is all all that exists. So their conclusions using the same evidence is going, they're going to be vastly, vastly different, not because the evidence is different, but because the lens that you're using to interpret the evidence is different. The axiom, the foundational presupposition is different. So when we're talking about carbon dating, you have to have three assumptions for it to work at all. First, you have to know the starting ratio of daughter to parent isotope. You can't know that. You have to guess. You can't possibly know that back here, this is exactly how much there was. There we go. Yeah. Nice job, Colton. Um, The second one, you have to know rate of decay. You know the rate of decay today. You don't know that that's been constant. And I think a lot of times in a lot of cases, you can assume that it's been constant. But the, the fact is, you don't know that for 10 million years or 5,000 years, that rate of decay has been constant. Uh, the third thing you have to assume is that there, that it's a closed system because a system where one of those either parent or daughter isotopes is leaving or, or leaving or, or coming or going or whatever, mm-hmm. if, they, if, they're, if they're coming and going, then that ratio is not going to be consistent throughout that whole time period that you're trying to measure. So those are the three assumptions that you have to make just to get to a point where you can try to date something. Um, so that's what I'm talking about. It sounds scientific when you're talking about, well, it's a science, you've, you've carbon dated, whatever. You're still using assumptions. Yeah. And, and if the assumptions are invalid, well, well, then your conclusions are invalid. What was it about your upbringing that allowed you to go through a system that would have been an echo chamber for to create a Neil deGrasse Tyson, you know, that, yeah. that old earth evolutionary based model 
what allowed you to weather that or did it strengthen it or did you gain that in that environment? Uh, I started out with that and I mean, we could talk a lot about how important upbringing and parental involvement and parental teaching is. And I had, I had that and it was good and solid. And, and ultimately it wasn't, it wasn't, Hey, you got to be a young earth creationist. That's our <laughs> thing. That's our thing we do. No, it was, Hey, the Bible is true. And now I'm going to expose you all. I mean, me, me and my siblings, we were exposed to people who looked at things critically and still came to the conclusion that the Bible is true. You know, whether that's C.S. Lewis and mere Christianity, yep. whether it's uh, all the scientific stuff, the uh, answers in Genesis or Institute for Creation Research, or a bunch of PhDs believe all of the things in Scripture as are written without compromising and are also publishing papers mm. in geology or astronomy. Um, it kind of gave us the freedom to not be afraid of the avalanche of, of arguments that we were going to get in high school, but mostly college. Um, yeah. We, we were just, we were inoculated, I guess. We were prepared for it. I mean, I was prepared for it, certainly. Um, and it didn't phase me. But the other thing that I did was uh, I didn't stay in an echo chamber. I read some of these other views, like Richard Dawkins, for example. I read Dawkins in medical school, and I was mentally prepared for, for an intellectual challenge. And you know what I found? It was terrible. I was so disappointed. <laughs> it was just nonsense. Have you ever read uh, Rudyard Kipling's Just So Tales? No. Classic, classic, classic. But it's Rudyard Kipling was, was a fantastic author. And, and he wrote uh, books that were just kind of fantastical, silly. Here's how the elephant got its trunk. And it's a story about a crocodile pulling the elephant. Hey, there you go. And it's the story. Perfect. Yeah, just those stories. So that that's how the elephant got its trunk. Is that it was there was a crocodile and it pulled and pulled and pulled and now the trunk is long. That's what I was reminded of when reading Richard Dawkins. He's just making stuff up. It's just not. There's no science to it. There's no empirical science to it. Um, but uh, you can. I guess my point in all of this is you can read scripture and you can just look at the text and you can believe it, especially if you're going to bother believing the doctrine of Jesus Christ, which is by far the most, from a scientific, materialistic, atheistic standpoint, the most absurd thing in all of scripture is completely ridiculous. Empirically, I can prove that you can't change water into wine ever. I can prove that a dead body cannot physically rise from the dead where I can't empirically prove the origin of the earth or the origin of the universe. or the origin of the space time material world that we live in, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? That's, yeah, that's a good point to, to science. Um, whether a human being can rise from the dead is not inaccessible to science. I can empirically prove a thousand times out of a thousand that that is, that is scientifically impossible. So, so why are you hanging on so tight? So the, the, the New Testament definitely requires a lot more 
more faith and an, an encounter yes. with, with the Holy Spirit left behind. Like there's this, uh, yeah. you know, uh, conviction that like, if you know, you know, you know, and there's a, mm-hmm. there's an acceptance and a, and a belief, you know, that Peter first got and others, but, but like you said, this, this, this time frame that you've chose to build your world in here of, of your, the fictional books, you know, uh, it is an easier scientific grab than the other when you're talking about that 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 world because we can kind of extrapolate what previous civilizations have built and left behind mm-hmm. and structures and you know all kinds of things you know so sure I, I think so and I think that sounds weird to a lot of Christians because the fact is David the other stuff the stuff in Genesis it's not salvific you don't have right. to believe something particular about it to be saved and go to heaven where where obviously the doctrine of Jesus Christ you do and so I think it's right that the doctrine of Christ is the central, most important dogma of the Christian. Uh, and I'm, I'm not saying that this stuff in Genesis is secondary, but it's not salvific. It's not going to save you whatever you believe about right. it. Uh, that being said, everything about you, it's very, very hard to defend, like we're talking about, every element that you have to believe to be saved of Jesus Christ's divinity and resurrection. If you abandon Genesis in the Old Testament to a materialistic, atheistic world and say, okay, we'll give you that stuff. But would you like to, would you like to hear about how Jesus Christ rose from the dead so that you could be saved and live forever in heaven? I mean, you're really, you're really kind of kneecap your witness there. If you, if you, if you give them, right. It's very, very hard to defend the gospels. And I think that's a great point. I think functionally you see that. I think that's why in England and in, in Europe, you see these beautiful, beautiful cathedrals that are, you know, mosques or casinos or whatever, why you have a fading post-Christian Europe. Um, because they did. In the 1800s, they did abandon Genesis. They abandoned it hard. And mm-hmm. then the next generation said, well, we'll still go to church, but it'll be cultural. And then the next generation said, why am I obeying all of these rules if it's all nonsense? I want to do what I want to do. Right. Uh, forget about it. Why, why am I wasting my Sunday? That is what you've seen. It's not theoretical. It does happen. And we're not that far in America, but I don't want to get there. Right. It's, it's time to, and I think a lot of that has to do with, with educating our children, right? Not sending them oh, blindly, yes. you know, into a, yep. into the abyss. All right. Well, I got here. I got to let's, let's go back in and dive into Bene Elohim. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's get back. Let's get back into this space. What does that mean? What's, what, what is a demon? What's an angel and what's Ooh. a Nephilim? Okay. Defining terms. Um, Just off the top of your got, head. Did, uh, off the top of my head. So an angel is a spiritual being created by God. Demons, now there, there are a couple of different thoughts. I tend to believe that very traditional, a demon is a fallen angel that rebelled with Satan and was okay. cast down to earth. Uh, the Bene Elohim, I think, is a different class than those. Okay. Uh, either the Book of Enoch or the Book of Jubilees talks in depth and gives a lot of names for these Bene Elohim. So it is, it is very much the view of, of that. Um, they weren't demons. They didn't rebel against God. They just 
wanted to have intimate relations with pretty ladies. It, it was it was strictly so a, a primal urge that that they had that right. they 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 weren't fallen angels. They were still part that didn't go out. Is that the the yeah, deal? Not demons. Yes, that's that that would be my so, contention. Is that they're not demons. So there's a batch um, of X me, number of angels. Some of them are, are kicked out the club. You got to change of address. You're not going to live on earth and inhabit that. And then there's two thirds. Is it a third and two thirds? Is that the number that then stayed? That were good. Is that guessing? Some, some that's a little bit guessing, but now you said something interesting that they weren't going to be on earth. Um, demons and Satan are very much on earth. Yeah. There is this, so sidetrack, I, I had a fun little project um, this summer writing a, a five-part documentary series for a, a pretty famous movie star who you would have heard of that didn't end up, uh, as of yet, going. Um, that's a whole story. But uh, investing became a problem, and so we pushed pause on it. But I did write this five-part documentary series and populated it with some really, really interesting people um, who are going to come on and talk about all this stuff about the the kind of the entirety of the supernatural world of scripture and one of the episodes was angels and demons there's a there's a guy who who recently passed away sadly named mike heiser but i would highly highly recommend you look up michael heiser's books Uh, he takes a different view on demons than i do and my view is that they are fallen rebellious angels um who are yeah booted out of heaven now they're they're you know, they're the princes of earth. Satan's the king of earth. One of the things that I talk about in that episode is that, um, yeah, the unseen realm, highly recommended. Um, in the episode about Satan, angels and demons is there, there's, I, I think I seen, I think I sent some pictures. Your perception of Satan is the king of where? Don't think, just say. That, King of the air, king of the, you know, uh, prince of prince of earth, king of the earth. Okay, well, you're right. Um, I think a lot of Christians would say, if they don't think about it, they say, well, he's the king of hell. He's he's there in a pitchfork, and he's, you know, yeah. like I saw in Looney Tunes or, or The Simpsons or South Park or something. Mm-hmm. You know, he that's where Satan lives. He's 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 the king of hell. And and my thought is, why do you say that? That's on that's on in scripture. He's very specifically the yeah, king going back to the Bugs Bunny days and all that early on. It yeah. was like, you know, yeah. you know, you, an anvil falls in your head and boom, you're there and yeah, you yeah. Know, you're talking They're to saying, the Um, but but that's Hades. That's Greek mythology. That has nothing to do with with the biblical Satan. Um he's not in hell. He's not gonna be in hell until revelation happens and he gets tossed in the lake of fire as punishment. He's not gonna be king of hell any I mean, he's king of earth right now. Um that being said. Uh, Heiser takes the view that demons are actually disembodied Nephilim spirits. And I'm not going to talk too much about that because, uh, it's not particularly the view I take, but it's interesting if you want to read about an alternative, very biblically based view. Um, but the Bene Elohim, again, I think are sort of an in-between class. And there is a scriptural reason why I think that if you go to second Peter two, or Second Peter two four, and we could go all the way to two four and five. Okay, you get there. I can just read it because I, I actually pulled it up. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, 
If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And then he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, so think about that. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but uh, it chained them in hell, hmm. is that demons? Are those demons? And I think biblically your answer has to be no. Demons are active. Demons are, are, are you know, the, the prince of Persia and the prince of uh, Babylon. Demon, demons are inhabiting the Gerasene demoniac. Demons are not chained anywhere uh, at any point in the Old or New Testament. So that can't be demons. It's got to be somebody else, right? But committed them to change of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. There is some class of jailed angels. Well, so who are they? Well, the next verse immediately goes into, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah. The next verse is Noah. So who, who are those angels? My contention mm. is that those ben Elohim. They came down, they had their giant babies who probably had a big part in messing up the entire world so God had to flood it. And they are punished. They are chained in, I think there's a translation called Gehenna. Um, so it's a separate, it's a separate group. That's, so, that's my answer for who so, so what, Elohim. So during this time, so, so Noah, Noah is, is, is alive in this time. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of conversation that, that, that Noah was chosen, not for just there being righteous, like he, he didn't do any bad things. Mm-hmm. That 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 he actually was a not genetically mutated in any kind of a way. That he he was yeah. a bloodline that could trace from Adam to Jesus because that's kind of what they end up tracing this bloodline for is mm-hmm. is the the authenticity of Jesus being who he claimed to be, and that record is kept. So, what do you think percentage wise the world looked like then between Noah and? the rest of creation at that point being contaminated with this Nephilim inbreeding. Some people really, really get into the, the genetic contamination. Uh, I don't as much in my stories. If you want to really dive into that, there is a very, very uh, good author who kind of tackles this material from a different perspective named Brian Gadawa. So you can look up if you want a totally different flavor of antediluvian novels Brian Gadawa's your guy, but he really is kind of the the genetic um, the the dirtying of the gene pool with with Nephilim okay. blood. Uh, I don't take that tack as much. I don't think that it would have been. I don't think that they were the silver bullet for God having to judge the earth. I think humans can do awful, awful things on their own. I think that they were a component of it for sure. I think Genesis makes that very clear. But I think the human capacity for wickedness is plenty to not chalk it up entirely to uh, angel-human hybrids. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. What percent- I don't know, and I could be totally wrong. That might be you know, exactly you gotta, why they didn't. Uh, you know, a verse like verse like this. Let me just read this. You know, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons yeah. of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old men of renown. Well, it also plays like that was interesting that, okay, just that verse, man, you could break this down for a long time, but it means to the listener, 
that these were these great heroes of old, these men of renown, like it also means a lot of time also gone by, you know, mm-hmm. a little bit like, like this wasn't, yeah. you know, you know, six months after the garden of Eden or, you know, something like that, that, right. that did generations go by a hundred years, 500 years. You know, we think America is an old country, but we're like nothing, yeah. you know, we're, um, we're a baby country. Yeah. When you look at these, these, these timelines here. So I guess they wouldn't have been, these great men of renown, if their abilities were commonplace and everybody was a Nephilim hybrid of some sort, unless that got diluted, unless like yeah. you're direct, you know, it's like, you know, LeBron James's son is probably going to have better athleticism than maybe his great grandson, depending on, you know, who those people marry. So, you know, it's yeah. like how close were you to that angel blood? And I'm sure there was a, you know, a mixture of all of that. And, and as it went around, but so they wouldn't yeah. have all been men of renown, you know, they weren't all, no, you know, that's right. uh, what, what kind of sizes were these people? What kind of things oh, yeah. could that's, they that's do? What would have made them renowned? Yeah. Uh, that's kind of the tack that I take with this. It, it, the other big part, you asked me what else I brought into it. So scripture foundational book of Enoch book of Jubilees, little pieces, but very, very uh, informative. The other part that I thought would be really interesting is I mentioned North, Norse mythology. In Greek and Norse and Celtic mythology, you have this very interesting uh, commonality, which is that the demigod, or the gods really, not even just demigods, but for example, the, the Greek gods, uh, they're very much human. They're, they do amazing things. And so do their offspring, the demigods, you know, Perseus or Hercules. Uh, same thing with the Norse gods where you have like the Aesir and the Vanir and the Celtic gods. There's a whole mythology that's less known, but most, most mythologies from the around, around the world have the, the group of, very human, not exactly righteous all the time, uh, gods, the pantheons, deposing even more powerful fathers. And in Greek mythology, it's like Cronus and the Titans. Zeus and his siblings cast them into Gehenna, which is the word that is used in Second Peter 2 where God cast him into Gehenna. So I definitely, definitely, definitely draw a lot from Greek and Celtic and Norse mythological figures and try to bring them. So I'll I'll explain it this way. Imagine if you are Noah and you knew Nephilim, or if you were Shem and you knew Nephilim, you actually knew these guys and not when they were either dead or so viciously wicked that what they had coming to them was was God's divine judgment. But you knew them when they were heroes of old, men of renown. That is not a negative connotation. Right. That is a very, very interesting because heroes, I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm sure the, 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 the writer heroes. here understood the word hero. Sure, of course he did, uh, especially when you get into something called um, uh, Toledoth theory and you, you look at who exactly wrote Genesis 6. But, uh, and I'm not saying, I'm, I'm not saying, and here's something crazy about Moses not writing it. There's interesting postscripts called Taladoths all throughout Genesis. The first one is these are the gener. It starts. These are the generations. 
the first one's in Genesis 2, where it's these are the generations of the heavens of the earth when God created the heavens and the earth. Then it goes into the Adam and Eve narrative, and it ends with these are the generations of Adam. Then it talks about the genealogy after Adam, and it's these are the generations of Noah. And then the Noah, Noah's flood happens, and at the end of that is these are the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. A natural reading that I think we do too much is we're using these are the generations of as a starting point where I think a better reading and a reading that makes more sense. Why would the generations of Noah start after Noah's death? Right. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That why would the generations of Adam start with and Adam died? That that's a good question. Actually makes sense. Right. It does make sense. If you look at it as a sign off, like here's uh, the creation account that ends in these are the generations of the heaven, heavens and the earth. Here's a story of Adam and Eve. These are the generations of Adam. Here is the genealogy from Adam to Noah and his sons. These are the generations of Noah. They would have been written by the people who actually knew about the events that not followed, but preceded. So anyway, next time you just happen to be reading through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, keep keep that whole Toledoth thing in mind. Um, I don't remember where I was going with the Toledoths. It's pretty interesting. Um, I was going somewhere, though. Don't want to miss about? it. I don't want to miss it. Uh, Damn uh, it. You know, freaking doctors. There's just You've, you've put too much stuff in there. Sometimes it got to <laughs> go through the junk drawer and, and find it all. Um, I know. The so, Toledoths so, were you were talking about mythologies, though. You're talking about Greek mythology oh, yeah, and Norse mythology. Good job, producer Colton. Thank you, Thank you Colton. Um, so, Greek mythology, Norse mythology. Uh, my contention would be that that Shem, Ham, Japheth, and Noah would have known heroes of old, men of renown, and not only would they have known them, they would have characterized them as heroes of old, men of renown. So, in in my books, in Leviathan, and in Fallen, I treat. Um, I treat my Nephilim characters, not all of them, and obviously they, you know, a lot of them do turn super bad, but I got good guys in there. I have heroes in there. They have to, if scripture calls them heroes of old men of renown, and I'm writing about that, I have to present them as that, and not just a bunch of monsters. Although I also think that, you know, they could be monsters. But imagine <laughs> you're the, you're Shem, Ham, Japheth, and Noah who knew these guys, they all died one way or another. And then you have the bottleneck of the flood and you get off the ark and then the world starts reproducing again. You're going to tell your kids these stories, right? You're going to tell them about uh, the heroes of old men of renown that you knew that were probably your friends uh, that, you know, sounded like they were kind of legendary figures who did big legendary things. And I don't think it's too far of a jump to say that some of those stories got disseminated and maybe became Greek mythology and maybe became Norse mythology. And when you had the Bene Elohim, whatever happened to them to where they're cast into chains and in, in judgment, and then the Nephilim were on the earth, heroes of old men of renown, it's not too hard to imagine how that could eventually morph into the stories of Zeus and Poseidon and Hades 
and their fathers, the Titans. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, people tell these stories and they, they start to come to life and they, they, they tend to pop up. There's a flood narrative in every culture, Mm -hmm. you know, like these stories went with them as they, as they moved throughout the world. Sure. Sure. And you know, they've, they've been, they've been fudged and exaggerated and changed, but I I thought it was a compelling enough thought that I, I did kind of take some mythological, mythological figures and try to project them back to maybe what they may have been. Also made it really easy to write the characters because I'm just like, I'm going to, I'm going to have a Hercules character. So then I didn't have to spend all time making it up. Yeah. Picture hit. All right. As we wrap up here, last kind of question I would have for you is, is in this space, it says they're also, they lived afterwards. And, and there's a lot of stories. There's, there's, there's David and Goliath. There's, you know, uh, oh, yeah. I, but Beniah killed a, an Egyptian was a seven, Thank you seven or eight foot for tall knowing about Beniah. Yeah. We killed a lion Two. in a, uh, in a, in a pit on a snowy day. Oh yeah. You know, and big guy, he was a gangster. He was super gangster. He was super hardcore. You know what he did for David? You know what he ended up being like an, like an assassin, right? He, that was Solomon. He was Solomon's assassin and he okay. went around and all of all of Solomon's enemies, but for David, he was the head of David's bodyguards, which interestingly were Philistines from the time when David was going around sacking Philistine cities for you know and not telling the Philistine king about it. But Beniah was the head of David's personal bodyguard, which was Philistines. Beniah is great. I love Beniah. But uh, number, there, there's a lot of giant activities, you know, back in these times, and so sure. so it, this didn't 100 percent end with the flood. Well, it, I, you haven't got to there in your book yet, but you know, how, how is, how is this yeah. and how would that have continued theoretically? So I'm so excited about the Reawaken America event. That's Freedom Train. The Freedom, Freedom Train. <laughs> we got that event coming up here in May and I we're know, excited. It's going to be at the Trump Doral and what a perfect location. It is absolutely beautiful, but we're going to have the cast of crew around President Trump. Yeah. You're going to have Peter Navarro. You're going to have Devin Nunes. You're going to have Ari Trapp. You're going to have Laura Trapp. You're going to have Clay Clark. These people that surround him, that talk to him regularly are going to be there and you're going to have an opportunity to meet them. And we're going to have such a great time. It is May Very the exciting 12th time. and the 13th. And it's not too late. You can still get tickets. All you have to do is text 918-851- 0102 text the word flyover and then they'll let you know hey this is the next step but it also gets you a discount when you do that what we have to toss out is some of them survived none of them survived you, you can't have a flood narrative that works if if they survive when in human history has Seeing the consequence of sin in someone else's life prevented other people from doing that sin, knowing full well what was going to happen. So far, never. Never. Bingo. Never. So where did the Rephaim and the Anakim and the Emim and the Zamzuman in Numbers 13 and all throughout David's campaigns with the giants and Joshua and Caleb and the spies, they they see Canaan is full of giants. Uh, I, I visited a church one time. And that was the only time I visited because the passage was over that. And and the pastor's final message takeaway was, and our message from this passage is don't exaggerate your problems. And I was like, exaggerate your problems? 
They weren't exaggerating their problems. Those are full <laughs> of giants. It's very specific. It talks about their literal sizes. It gives them yes. names. It gives them a people group. The, Joshua and Caleb just weren't scared. Everyone else was like, hey, we're not going to be – they, they didn't even do a sales pitch of like they're not that big of giants. They're actually very small giants. They didn't. There no. was no pitch. They, their 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 only pitch was how big God was. Exactly. exactly. They didn't minimize the giants uh, at all. No, exactly. Um, uh, that drove me crazy. I didn't stand up and say something though. So good for me. Um, so my contention would be that angels, other angels, other Ben Elohim, saw that the daughters of men after the flood were still beautiful. And they did the same stupid thing that their colleagues did that got them cast into Gehenna. Because you know what? Angels clearly have free will. They clearly are able to make bad decisions. And and I think the easiest, most Mm. logical answer is there's just more angels that did the same stupid thing. Just like we humans over and over again do the same stupid thing even though we have a million examples of all the bad outcomes that are surely going to come our way. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's and, and that's, that's it, it, it's the most logical, you know, answer there as you, as you go along um, of what would have taken place and it's easier. You'd have to invent another kind of hoop to jump through probably and in, in some kind of a theological gymnastics in order to make something else work there afterwards. Yeah. You know, I, I couldn't have been more disappointed when they had the Noah movie with Russell Crowe. Uh, I'm like, what a great opportunity to tell a great story. I mean, just oh, yeah. the text just speaks for itself. Just, just do that. Then they, they work in global warming. They'd eaten all the trees. This was the problem, they didn't steward the no, planet good enough. And then they, they and then the, the guy sneaks onto the boat and he, he basically, he wasn't a vegetarian. He liked to eat meat. And that's yeah. why he got on there. It's like, there, there's all these, like, it's, what'd you call them earlier? Axioms? Uh, they, they, they came into that narrative with, with a huge agenda and messed up a story that was just laying there as low hanging fruit. They they didn't even get eight people on the ark, right? If you're going to do Noah, my goodness, obviously there's different ways to take it. There are different things to do. Um, but you got to have eight people on the ark. You didn't have eight people on the ark. Yeah. I was just the basics, just the basics. I was, as soon as I saw that Aronofsky was a guy who got it, Yeah, my heart sank because I, I think I had just finished my first book and I'll tell you, every author has dreams, especially when you're writing, you know, big old, uh, you know, biblical fantasy, big old, big old epics with cool special effects and uh-huh. people, dinosaurs. You think, man, that movie would be neat. Um, production studios. Um, hey, oh. if, if you're watching this, shout, shout out at me. I'll, I'll even write the screenplay. Um, but then I saw Aronofsky got Noah and it was going to be big budget with with Russell Crowe and a good cast and good special effects. And I thought, well, that's yeah. in years. That's 10 yeah. years at least before anyone will touch it. It's yeah. biblical. So like it's Rid- not- Rid- Ridley Scott would have at least, you know, let the text speak for itself and just told <sighs> the story. And it would have been fantastic, you know, but, know. you know, or, or somebody else like that. So Mel Gibson. Hey, Mel. Mel. Oh. You would be amazing at this. Apocalypto, passion. You'd be so good. Oh. Um, and there's clearly an audience for this. You look around what's going on right now. We have uh, the nefarious movie uh, coming mm-hmm. out this weekend. We have, uh, uh, which is just phenomenal, A-list characters. The Jesus Revolution movie uh, recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, just I didn't even know it was out. We, last weekend we watched uh, uh, with Dennis Quaid a movie called uh, On a Wing and a Prayer. Yeah. It's a true true story about a, a flight. Like, Graham. 
with Heather Graham. I was like, this is yeah. just ph- just phenomenal story. It was like edge of your seat, great movie, no fast forwarding, no family friendly. I can't, I, I could just go on and on the list, but like there is such a hunger for people to want to go and consume this kind of content. The Chosen, obviously, you know, um, oh, yeah. has, has done really well. So it's like, I, I think there is a great future in this because it's what the market demands. Now, I don't know how much they, they're concerned with that. I know every year they got to throw you at least one Top Gun, one crumb, you know, out there and, and just to, right. to, to pay for all the Oscar nominees that nobody actually went and saw. But, but yeah, I well, think we, there's a future have- for this. We could have a long, 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 long conversation about the state of Hollywood and pop culture in general. Um, the state of creativity, it's, it's a zombie industry and it's just feasting on itself. It's, re, it, it's eight remakes from the 80s, sequels of sequels of sequels. It, that, 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 is a, that is a large topic that maybe we'll have to do one day continue this conversation. You got the Huffman letters, huffmanletters.com. Um, tell people what they can kind of find when they go there. You, these aren't the only books you've written. I think you, you, did you write something about, about toots? I did scroll down. Those are just nice people who wrote nice things about the books. Um, but if you keep going down, yeah, there, there it is. Uh, up. Okay, we spin past it. There fast. you go. A little yeah, bit down. There we go. There. The tooth so, fairy. So I stumbled into writing novels and I stumbled into doing most of my projects. Um, my brain thinks of a thing and then I, I decide, okay, I'll do it. I guess I'll write it down in my phone. Um, I wrote a 22 song, two act musical based on the cosmic core of HP Lovecraft, which I think is somewhere on the website. It's super great. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, I was riding with my family. We were going on our Florida. Yeah, there you go. That middle one. That one's super dope. Um, you should read through it. It's, it's, it's something. Um, and, and I thought in my head while my wife was driving in between Louisiana and Mobile with a bunch, you know, four kids in the car who are getting a little stir crazy. I will write a poem about the toot fairy. Cause that sounds funny. Yeah. And anything with toot in it's going to be instant classic. It turned out really, really funny. And everyone kind of loved it. And my in-laws, when we got to where we were going, loved it. Um, and then I kept writing them. I wrote one about cheese that's published. I, I wrote a, a bunch of Toot Fairy sequels now. One is published. It's called Bubbles. It's about a mermaid with a gas problem. Um, <laughs> this is good as it sounds. Uh, one of them I wrote to annoy my publisher. It, it, all my stuff rhymes. I, I write in verse. Um, and I don't make up words like Dr. Seuss, who is not a real doctor. I'd like to point that out. Uh, yeah. And I... I ruined every stanza by changing the rhyming word to the wrong one. It's just the most irritating thing I've ever written. I can't read it. Um, and he loved it. And he was like, we got to publish it. So that's called Bill and the Bard. And that's out. Um, but yeah, I got four children's books out and uh, they're, they're, they're pretty fun. If you got, if you got kids, uh, you, you might, you might have a good time. Kids, the grandkids, maker, obviously. Kids, grandkids, cheesemaker Durdston in particular, if you want to feel something that you've never felt before from literature. I recommend you pick up that book. Okay. It's called that, Cheesemaker Dirt's Den, and I'm not going to say anything else about that's it. But a, it, that's a, a, an intriguing an intriguing invite. Yes, yes. Um, I need to get you a copy, and you'll see what I mean immediately. My best author, children's author story is reading Cheesemaker Dirt's Den to a group of librarians at a conference, and when I get to a certain part, one of them just turns around and walks away walks away as the book's not dirty. It's not profane. It's not 
uh, you know, obscene or inappropriate, but there's a part that just hit so hard. She just walked away. I thought it was hilarious. I, I've said too much. I can't, I can't say anymore. Um, <laughs> we are going to, going to check it out. Uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. The exact goal of what I want with these uh, conspiracy conversations, because this is what I would call almost a conspiracy that's out in the open in church because people can go to church for 40, 45 years and they've never heard these stories. And so like, why would it be hidden in the place where these are hallowed words and documents? And it's because people don't know what to do with it. They're scared to touch it. They don't know. That's right. It's it's confusing. It's outside of, of, of the realm of what they can quantify. They're not sure if it's really real or is it just, you know, and uh, you know what, the Bible is a very great and interesting book. If, if you take it at face value and, uh, and uh, dig into it a little bit on your own. And I'm so glad that you have. Yeah, and I agree with what you said. This stuff is relegated, whether it's Noah or David, um, it's relegated to, to the to the felt board when you're five. Mm-hmm. And then it's never ever touched again. And I think that's such a disservice, especially because there's such compelling, interesting narratives for a culture that is getting overwhelmed by Game of Thrones and superhero films. And then the Bible is is treated as some stodgy, kind of dusty, boring guys in robes with sandals. Okay. I mean, not in. Yeah. My goodness. Read through the narrative. David, it's got every single. George Martin could dream about writing something like that. Just, just that alone. So, so guys check out Leviathan, check out fallen. We're going to put the links uh, to both of them below. You can get them on Amazon. You can get anywhere books are sold. Um, We'll put the links down below. Check them out. Give yourself something good to chew on. Again, it's a it's a fictitious uh, novel, but it might start putting some skin on characters that you do know and that are from God's Word. And you know what? You're going to be chewing on something and trying to find something interesting to do with your time. You might as well uh, be doing it uh, in a space like this where you know you're probably going to be uh, stimulated in the right direction, get your brain thinking about some good stuff. Dr. Mark Huffman, thank you for joining me on the Flavor Conservative Podcast, special edition of Conspiracy Conversations. And uh, I'd like to have about 10 more of them with you because you are a deep well. Let's do it. I'm all, I'm all for it. Thanks so much for having me, David. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men and women created by the goal. You know the, you know the thing. We will shut you down. We will cite you. And if we need to, we will arrest you and we will take you to jail. Period. I wasn't thinking of the Bill of Rights when we did this. But no amendment, no amendment to the Constitution is absolute. God actually spoke to me. He spoke about sacredness. He said to me, Kim, what I place in many, many people is sacred. And if anybody touches what is sacred to me, then it is the end for them. So what I've done in the United States of America is sacred. And there are people on every side that are trying to destroy what I deem sacred. And it's not going to happen. This is the definition of criminal conspiracy, racketeering, and collusion. This is not a theory. This is evidence. Because I have upheld this country to spread a light to the rest of the world. Go and get the sacred thing that God put into the very heart and the soil of this nation. This was sacred to God.
This reawakened tour is literally what it means. It has reawakened the American heart. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Flyover Conservatives podcast with David and Stacey Whited. Please subscribe, hit the notification bell, and leave us a comment below. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's podcast, share with those who came to mind. Be blessed and make it a great day. Yeah.